Let me just speak to this before we start. No doubt you're aware, most of you, if not all of you, if you've seen anything in the news today of the terror attack in Paris, um, and of the 12 people shot and killed, the motivation for this, unbelievable to me. They, they targeted a satirical magazine because the magazine published pictures and cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. And this was so offensive that it required the, the revenge killings of 12 people. And I again, I've said this before, but I, I feel compelled to repeat it tonight. If you want to know the true heart of a religious faith, and I know everybody's going around, I've, I've already heard on talk radio today, people saying, look, it's not Islam, it's, it's extremists, it's extreme people, they're extremist Christians as well. Uh, <clears throat> if you want to go to the extreme of any faith and find out what it's really all about, you look to the founder. So it's very simple to understand, and people say, oh no, the Quran says this, that the Quran uh, speaks against this kind of thing, and I've heard verses quoted from the Quran that, that say, you know, everybody should be brought into Islam and, uh, and kept safe there. The issue is outside of that, you're the infidel and you are worthy of nothing but death. I've read enough of the Quran to see what it says and to know, and also we've been watching now for how many years? Where are the acts of terror coming from? Rick, you're getting into the realm of Muslim bashing. I've told you before, I don't hate a single Muslim. I do hate Islam. Because any faith that would take people away from Jesus and deny them eternal salvation, yeah, I hate. But look to the founder. The founder is the issue. And you can look at any religious faith and look at the founder. How did he live his life? What did he do? What did he say? Was he consistent in his teachings and in his behavior? Is he the kind of person or is she the kind of person you would model your life after? Look to the founder. I am so sold out to Christianity, not because it's the religion of choice in my household, but because I know the founder. Because when I look at Jesus, I can't find a single thing that I don't want to be. He's perfect in all things. He is spot on in every conversation, every confrontation, every act of compassion. I look at Jesus and I say, that is what I want. He is what I want to model my life after. More than that, He's the one I want to know. If there is anybody in this world I want to know better, it's Him. And He's the only one that I know 100% of the time makes my life better by my knowing Him. Grows my spirit, encourages my heart, opens my eyes, shows me truth. Look to the founder. We're in the Gospel of John. I love this Gospel. Because we get to know the heart of the founder. And the other Gospels do that as well. We have different perspectives. We've been talking about that. But man, John. John knew Jesus, I think, like nobody else did. As a man. And then John saw him as a resurrected 
God and realized who He really was completely, fully. So as John writes this Gospel, what John wants you to know, what the Spirit compels John to share with you, to share with me, is that the founder of this faith is a man, but he's also God. And there is no other founder of any other faith that can make that claim. Both man and God, God and man, look to the founder. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the reason, the mind, if you will. The Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You know, that light, that illumination, that understanding, that discernment. In Jesus, there is that. Man, I just start to understand stuff better. And I can discern truth. Because He illuminates that for us, for me. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness did not comprehend it. And we talked about those several verses a few weeks back. The darkness didn't comprehend it. That word comprehend, katalambano, can also be translated, the darkness does not overtake it. So here's good news. When you walk with Jesus, you cannot be kept in the dark. Your eyes are open. And there came a man sent from God whose name was John. We talked about John on Sunday. Not John the Apostle, author or writer anyway of this Gospel, but John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all men might believe through him. Now he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Stop right there just for a second. I know we've covered a few of these verses already, but the world was made through Him and the world did not know Him. One of the things that blows my mind almost more than anything else within the church and among Christians is Christians who do not believe or accept that Jesus is God. Or have a hard time with Son of God, but not God as in terms of equal with the Father. You know? And I remember years ago, when I was a young man, struggling with the whole issue, I was with someone who began praying, saying, Lord Jesus, and went on into the prayer. I'm like, Lord Jesus? You mean, dear Heavenly Father? Let's not get things out of order here. You know, let's make sure that we don't elevate Jesus above the Father, because His first Father, Father God, and then Son of God, you know, He comes along secondarily. And then, of course, the force. And so many in Christianity truly think that way. Father, Son, and Holy Force. And that's not the way it is. That's not what Scripture describes for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one person, three in one, the Trinity, all one God, all aspects of the same God. Jesus is God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. I don't know how John could have made it any plainer. And when he says he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him, one of the things that still remains unknown about people is that Jesus is our creator. 
that without Jesus in the act of creation, there would not be creation. It was made through Him. And this truth is repeated time and time again in the Scriptures. Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 1. The Hebrew writer covers it in Hebrews chapter 1. John, obviously, in John 1. And throughout the Scriptures, we keep coming back to that realization that creation was an act of Christ. And yet the world didn't know it. He came to His own. His own people. Israel. And those who were His own did not receive Him. Well, I guess so He had to go to plan B, right? No. His own did not receive Him. He knew they would not receive Him. That was part of the whole plan. He knew what was going to happen. And He knew that eventually they would come back around to the receiving of Jesus. Which is something I'm praying for. And so many are waiting for. And that is the redemption of Israel that Paul talks about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But they didn't receive Him, not the first time. Verse 12, But as many received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Romans 8, verse 21 says, The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I really like this phrase, the children of God, but it is an important phrase in the Scriptures and not used very much. Right here, John writes that He gave them the right. Those who receive Him have the right to become children of God. And we need to understand and know the children of God are never born by natural means. That the children of God are only born of a supernatural birth. That without the supernatural birth, you are not a child of God. Something else that is, I think, sometimes misunderstood. Whenever I hear someone say, well, we're all God's children. Speaking of the generic world, I wince. Because it's not true. To call someone a child of God because they're a human being is a misnomer. Scripture doesn't teach that. We are not all children of God. Now, don't get out ahead of me thinking, oh no, Rick's getting exclusive here. No, I'm not. In fact, I can't think of anything more inclusive than anyone who receives Him becomes a child of God. But the truth is, and we've got to recognize, that humanity is not the children of God. Not according to Scripture. There is not a single verse... In the entire Bible, mark this, challenge me on it, look it up, try and find it. Not a single verse in which humanity, humankind, is referred to as all God's children. Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 says, In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Yeah, we bear characteristics, traits, we are like God, all humanity Believers and non-believers alike have some, there's something about us, the eternal nature, perhaps, the ability to reason and think, the soul that is in man and woman that is not in any other creature. And so in that way we have the likeness of God. But Genesis 5.2 says He created them male and female, He blessed them, and He named them man in the day when they were created. Adam. Adam. He named them, male and female. He just said, you're mankind, you're humanity. That's, I'm going to call you this. He does not say, ah, 
Look at my children. Well, what about the phrase sons of God? We see that in the Bible, don't we? Yes, we do. The phrase is B'nai Elohim in the Hebrew, and it is only used to refer to angels. So, you see, the Bible never calls blanket generic humanity children of God. The Bible never calls blanket generic humanity sons of God. And as we learned on Sunday, the word right there in verse 12, he gave them the right to become children of God. It's the Greek word exousia and it's power. It is supernatural power. He gave us the power to become children of God, which is not something we could have done. It's not in us. But He gave us the power. He gave us the authority. He called us His children. And the point is not what a wonder we are. The point is not Christian arrogance. Well, we're the only real children of God. That's not what I'm saying. The point is, it is by His will and by His power that anyone can be reborn a child of God. But to be called a child of God requires a rebirth. As Jesus will talk about in John chapter 3, being born again. Romans chapter 8 verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Paul says in Romans 9 verse 8, It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. Let me read that one more time. (laughs) It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. 1 John 5.12 tells us, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So there's your supernatural. Something flesh cannot achieve. Something only the Word made flesh can do. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. And if you weren't here on Christmas Eve, I encourage you to go online and listen to this teaching. Because the depth of what... John shares by the Spirit in verse 14 is absolutely overwhelming. I had planned on Christmas Eve to do verse 14 through about 18. Kind of do that whole little section there. I couldn't get out of verse 14. Because it's so amazing, so wonderful, so immensely profound. I would place John 1.14 among the most profound scriptures in the entire Bible. And John chose two words here to describe the fullness of The fullness of the Word made flesh. Two words, grace and truth. Israel had been given a book of truth. Understand, the Hebrew Scriptures are truth. Absolutely perfect truth. The perfect law of God. But the thing is, while we can go back now and and with the light of the Spirit, with the illumination and understanding of of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can look back at the Hebrew Scriptures and study through, and we can see grace all over those pages. But the truth is, until Jesus came along, most people couldn't. I think a few did. I think David saw the grace of God. I think Moses understood something of the grace of God, though he was the lawgiver. 
I think Joshua knew of God's grace. I think you can go down the line. Jacob certainly had to know that God was gracious to let him get away with what he did. But throughout, most of the world did not see grace. Even today, does not see grace in the Hebrew Scriptures. They see law. They see a harsh God. A demanding God. So the Lord said, you're not getting it. And He came in the flesh. And it was the grace of God that Israel and the world did not yet, and in fact still do not comprehend. Jesus carried the fullness, understand, the fullness of both. Both the truth of the Hebrew Scriptures and the grace of the New Testament. All of it comes directly through and by the person of Jesus Christ. He is the fullness of grace and truth. Verse 15, John testified about Him. And cried out saying, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. For He existed before me. It's one of those paradoxes, one of those oxymorons of Scripture. He comes after me, but He was before me. And again, only an eternal God can move back and forth in time like that. He says, For of His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. You cannot outuse God's grace. There's always more. There is a continuous flow of His grace like a nonstop river that just keeps going and never ends. We're not handed this much grace, and boy, I hope that gets you through eternity because it's all you get. It's a constant flow of God's grace. Grace upon grace. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting to me here in verses 15, 16, and 17, there's a contrast between a first John and a second John. The first John came announcing Christ and the truth of the law, John the Baptist. The second John is now declaring Jesus by the grace and the truth of God. The first John, John the Baptist, Came as a forerunner. You know this. The last in the company of the Hebrew prophets. The last voice declaring what both the law and the prophets anticipated. And that is the immediate coming of Messiah. That's the first John. The second John, not the Baptist, but the beloved. He now describes the fullness of Messiah as, I said, grace upon grace. That unquenchable, unending unattainable, inexhaustible flow of God's favor. The second John, John the Apostle, John the Beloved, starts bringing grace, starts showing us a God of grace in ways I don't think anyone else quite captured, quite quite expressed the way we see expressed in the Gospel of John. John the Beloved. John is what he called himself. Remember the disciple whom Jesus Loved, And he writes as one who knew Jesus and who was transformed by Jesus, the second John. He was a hothead when it all started. You know, Jesus called him and James sons of thunder, Boanerges. You two are Boanerges. And I don't think it was a compliment. Because these were the two brothers who when a, a, a town did not receive Jesus said, can we call down some fire out of heaven and just blow them away? He could have called them the Nuke brothers. It would have worked. Boanerges, sons of thunder. John went from Boanerges to beloved. 
John in his old age tradition tells us was known as the beloved apostle. The apostle of love. Tradition also tells us that that's all John would talk about. Love. Little children love one another. That's all he would say in his old age. They thought he was a doddering old fool. He kept just saying it because he knew they weren't getting it. John the Beloved. And it never would have happened if he hadn't first received Jesus. The power to become a child of God comes through the receiving of Jesus. Now you might ask the question, why must a person receive Jesus? Now maybe you've been asked that by a non-Christian. Why does it have to be your way? Why can't it be everybody's way? Why can't we all just flow that same direction, you know, under different leaders, different founders of different faiths? Why does it matter? Why do you have to receive Jesus and Jesus alone? Here's the answer, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained. I love that word, explained. I think I've told you before, in the Greek it's exegiomai. If you're trying to write that down, you may be thinking, exegiomai. How do I write this? We have a word for that in English. It's a Bible study word. It's the word exegesis. An exegesis, to exegete a passage, means to go through it word by word by word to know what every single word means and at the end of the passage or the end of the verse. You've exegetically studied it. You understand it. It's now been explained to you. That's what Jesus did of God. He exegeted the Father for us. He is the exegesis of God. He fully explained, and I, we don't have a word that, that, that works quite as well as exegeomai. It means out of. It means to reveal in full detail, to make fully known, to tell completely. And that's what Jesus does of God. He has exegeomied the Father. He has explained Him. And again, the word explained is not good enough. not strong enough. It's two words. Exegeomai is two words in the Greek. Let me get technical just for a second because it's, it's fascinating stuff. Exegeomai, the ex part of it, means out from. Hegeomai means chief authority or leader. When you put it together, it means out from the authority. Out from the chief. Out from the leader. And what's interesting is there's another word in the Greek and that is apogeomai. Where we get our word apogee. Apogeomai or exegeomai. John uses exegeomai, which means out of the chief authority, out of the leader. Apogeomai doesn't mean out of, it means, it means out from beside, or near, or in proximity to. So please understand that if Jesus was a created being, if Jesus was a little higher than the angels, but not quite God. If Jesus was just in the presence of the Father, John would have had to have used apogeomai. He would have had to say apo because Jesus wasn't out from, he was out from beside. He, he was near. He was in proximity to the Father. But John says, no, no, he came out from the Father. The Word made flesh. Jesus is God. And we see this time and time again. To say Jesus has explained Him means He reveals God by coming to us out from, from within God. He is the heart of the Father. God made flesh. 
And no other founder of any other religion, in fact, no other being can claim that. Only Christ Jesus. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And we talked about this on Sunday morning. Every answer John gave was shorter. As if the more they asked him questions about himself, the less he wanted to talk. And it was only when he was talking about Christ that his words pick up again. Well, who are you then? And he says, I am a voice, verse 23, of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as, the, as Isaiah the prophet said. I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice declaring the gospel. That's all I am. I am not any of these other things. And again, we covered that on Sunday. But continuing on in verse 24, it says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, Well, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Remember, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. came to the world, the world didn't know him. John says, Among you stands one you don't know. It is he who comes after me, verse 27, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And that's a rabbinical phrase. I'm not worthy to even stoop down and untie his sandals here. He is, he is so great that for me to do that would be presumptive. <laughs> so I can't, I don't dare even think along those lines. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. It's where we do our baptizing in Israel when we go now. Found the place. I love it. Bethany beyond Jordan. It's down uh, outside of Jerusalem, a ways outside of Jerusalem there. Um, it's dry. It's deserty. The water's brown. Palm trees up on either side. You can look across the Jordan River and see trans- Jordan itself, the, the country of Jordan. And we baptized there. And that's where John was baptizing, right in that area. Bethany beyond Jordan. John the Baptist. He was the first Baptist. He wasn't a second Baptist and he wasn't the American Baptist. He was just the first Baptist. What was the baptism of John all about? I was asked this question on Sunday morning. What was the baptism of John really all about? Sometimes that's confusing for believers. Let's clarify a couple of things. Number one, note this. John's baptism was a complete immersion. I'm going I'm to shoot very straight with you on this. I want this on the record and I want you to hear it and I want you to, this is another area I would say if you're unfamiliar with baptism by immersion, if you've never been baptized by immersion, I encourage you and challenge you to think this through biblically. Don't take my word for it. I'll give you some scriptures and we'll talk this through, but think it through biblically. I've been asked, Rick, what is your deal with baptism? I mean, look at this, right? This massive stone mikvah, the Hebrew baptism. Well, what are you doing here? Why is this so important throughout the building process, especially as we were coming down to the final weeks and we were getting close to occupancy and Glenn knows this. I kept saying, when are we going to do the baptistry? When are we going to do the baptistry? I want the baptistry. Why? Because the pond is cold. (laughs) 
What is the deal with baptism? Why do we do this? And why carve a huge chunk out of our auditorium? This is seating space that we're sacrificing. Why is it so important? And how do we even know baptism was by immersion in the first place? I've been in different churches, and they all do it differently. So you say immersion, that's fine. You say potato, they say potato, who cares? (laughs) Understand, history and archaeology confirm that baptism in the first century church was by immersion. That's how they did it. You can argue the point, but you're arguing with history and with archaeology. In fact, before the church, that's how they did it. This did not originate with the church. This was the Jewish mikvah. We've talked about the mikvah bath. It was the ceremonial cleansing bath into which a Jew would go. I have been in a mikvah in Jerusalem, the the remains of one, and you walk down steps into water that would be about chest deep by the time you got in there. You dunked underneath. You came out completely washed out the other side, put on the white robe, and then you could go to temple. And that's how they did it. The understanding of baptism, a word that we've really messed up in our translations, the understanding of the Jewish mikvah, of the washing, was absolutely clear to the Jews. So when John was out there baptizing the Jordan, this was not a new thing. This was a ceremonial washing. The people would look out there and go, oh, yeah, that's what we do when we're getting ready for something important. That's what we do when we're preparing to be in the presence of the Lord. The mikvah. And even the language itself is clear, and this is why I made the comment about our translations. The word in the Greek, you Bible students know this, it's baptizo, which is translated submerge. Not sprinkle. Now you're stepping on toes, Rick. Hey, there's a Greek word for sprinkle. If you'd like to use it, it's rantizo, and it is not used one time when referring to baptism in the Scriptures. Not once. Every time baptism is talked about, throughout the book of Acts, throughout the Gospels, every time you see the word baptism, it's baptizo, and the Greek word, the original word, is to submerge. That's what the word means. John's baptism was a complete immersion. It's the way it was done in Jewish tradition. If a non-Jew wanted to become a Jew, to become a proselyte, they had to go through a mikvah bath. They were baptized into Judaism. So this was not something that was unknown. In fact, not only was John's baptism by complete immersion, but secondly, John's baptism was by common experience. Everyone understood it. It's only now in the church that people kind of go, I don't... John baptized, but then Jesus... But why did he... I don't know what... And how did he come up with that? And why did people know to go out to him to get baptized? Because they understood it. It was common practice. It was not unusual. And the Jewish people very clearly understood throughout Hebrew history, they understood the connection between physical washing and spiritual righteousness. They got it. I can give you verse after verse. Psalm 51, verse 2. David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Isaiah 1.16 Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from myself. Wash, the Lord says. Jeremiah 4, verse 14. Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. So the, the concept of washing and being clean before the Lord, the priests had to be washed. The very first priests, Aaron and his sons, 
had to be completely washed head to toe before they could enter into the priesthood in the beginning. The Jews would go to temple. They would see those huge bronze lavers, which were for washing hands and feet before anything that they would do, any of the holy items that they would, that they would carry around and use. They had to go to the, the laver and wash. And then on top of that, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, head to toe, mikvah bath, baby, he was washed clean. You don't want to go before the presence of a holy God with a single speck of dirt. They got it. It's what they did. Peter explains this now to the, to the Gentile Cornelius, who as a proselyte himself probably had already been through the mikvah cleansing, so he had a concept of baptism. Acts chapter 13, verse 23, Peter's talking to Cornelius and he says, From the descendants of David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. A baptism of repentance. What's that? Repent. Prepare. Come back to the Lord. Get washed because the kingdom is near. And that was the message of John. So his baptism wasn't anything special. It wasn't anything amazing. It was simply, let's get clean. Let's get right. Let's get clean physically to show that we are willing to be clean spiritually because God is about to do something. Now, after the transfer of all of this and baptism became the thing in Acts 2.38 at the very first sermon on the day that the church was founded when Peter and the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit you remember the story one of the things that Peter said right there when the people said what shall we do to be saved he said repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit now that didn't happen in John's baptism you didn't receive the Holy Spirit. You just got a cleansing to signify a heart change or at least a heart focus. But you didn't get the Holy Spirit. This is a new thing. Peter's saying, you know, we all obviously have the Holy Spirit. If you want the Holy Spirit, here's one way I can guarantee you're going to get it. Rick, why do you say here's one way I can guarantee it? Well, because if you read through the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes on people in a multitude of different ways. And is not bound to only one experience. But I can tell you this, if you don't have the Holy Spirit and you haven't been baptized, there may be a connection. And if you want to be certain that you're receiving the gift of God abiding in you, the indwelling Holy Spirit, get baptized. Now, this goes on, and the church is now baptizing, and we see this throughout the book of Acts time and time again, when someone comes to the Lord, whether they already received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit or not, they get baptized. Acts chapter 19. Keep your finger in John and just slip over a couple of books to the right. Actually, just one book to the right. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And just follow this story. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No. We've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Well, into what then were you baptized? Note that. The very first thing Paul says when they say we don't have the Holy Spirit is, Well, wait a minute. How were you baptized? Paul understood what Peter had preached. 
If you're baptized into Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You receive the indwelling Spirit of God in that, in, in that experience of baptism. Paul's like, how are you baptized then? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, oh, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in Him who is coming after Him, that is, in Jesus. Oh, the light goes on. And they say, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon him, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and there were in all about twelve men. Now, some people might say, Okay, but Paul had to lay his hands on them so they really didn't receive the Spirit in baptism. And I would say, no, they did receive the Spirit in baptism. The indwelling Spirit of God. Paul laid his hands on them and the Spirit then was outpoured. The Spirit that was in them in their baptism now is upon them by the laying on of hands. Understand that? The Bible talks about different experiences with the Holy Spirit. One is simply that God is indwelling. One is that He is alongside, the paraclete. Parakletos is how Jesus describes Him, the Helper, we'll get to that in John 14, coming alongside you. He indwells you, He comes alongside you, and Acts chapter 1 tells us very clearly He comes upon you in power. The indwelling Holy Spirit now comes upon them as Paul lays His hands on them. We need the power of the Spirit. Why? So we can be rolling in the aisles? Exactly. That's my goal. (laughs) We need the power of the Spirit because, my friends, the message of the Gospel that God has called us to voice in the wilderness is beyond us to accomplish. The ministry of the church is bigger than any of us to achieve. The work of love and grace and compassion, I can tell you, is far greater than anything I have internally in me. I need the Spirit of God. I need His power. I need His wisdom. I need His strength. I need His knowledge. I need His understanding. I need the fear of the Lord that comes by the Spirit of God. I need all that the Lord will give me through His Spirit so that I can walk according to the Spirit. So that I can have the power of the Spirit. And this does not preclude or disclude baptism. It's a part of the deal. Rick, are you one of those who says that you've got to be baptized to be saved? No, because baptism doesn't save you. Grace of God saves you. Well, so why do you talk about baptism? Well, because Jesus commanded it. And because once I have chosen Once I have received Christ to become a child of God, why would I not do anything He says to do? If Jesus said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to receive me, and then I want everybody to do a somersault on the stage. (laughs) Would you do it? Now some of you might go, I don't even know if I could. I would probably need some help. But I'll tell you what, if Jesus said that's what He wanted me to do, I would do it in a heartbeat. He said, I want you to get baptized. Well, I don't understand, Lord. I didn't ask you to understand. And when I was a ten-year-old boy and I was baptized for the first time, I did not understand. I didn't really know. I mean, I knew I loved Jesus. And I knew He said to do it. I didn't really understand what it all meant. But I knew that's what He wanted. 
And you know what? That's good enough. So, have you been immersed in the name of Jesus? If you have, fantastic. If you haven't, by your own choice, I'm not saying your parents had this done for you or to you as an infant. Have you, by your own choice, been baptized into the name of Jesus, immersed, submerged into the name of Jesus? If not, and I don't know, I honestly don't know if everyone here has, has not, I don't know. If you haven't, then I just leave you one question on this before we go on. Why not? Why not? This is not legalism. In fact, it's just applying the same standard of literal biblical interpretation that we use in all of our Bible study. Baptism is just one more. The difficulty with baptism is people have a tradition, an upbringing, and a fear that if I make this choice, I will veer off of what my parents chose for me long ago. And what I always tell people who have that struggle is this. You will honor your parents' choice to dedicate you to the Lord. But you've got to make the choice yourself. That's the last thing I'll tell you about baptism is that it is always, biblically speaking, it's by choice. It is never done to a person. It is always chosen by a person. It's believe first and then be baptized. And a baby can't do that. So I leave that to you to think about. Again, understanding baptism does not save you in and of itself, but it declares the salvation that has been accomplished. It's an outward embrace of the will of our Lord Jesus, and it's a show of obedience to Him. And if you've been wondering, how can I really obey? What's something I could do? You know, to obey Jesus and you haven't been baptized, I'd say that's a great place to start. I'm just. I'm not going to read it right now. I want to move on to other things. Read Romans chapter six. Just read Romans six if you're struggling with this, thinking about it, because the way John, uh, Paul describes baptism in Romans six, it's amazing. It's beautiful. Buried into the waters of baptism, like Jesus was buried. We associate ourselves with that burial and with that resurrection. It's amazing. And I don't know how you could read that and not think. Okay, I guess immersion's the deal. Romans chapter 6, check it out. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How, Lord? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you to the very end of the age. If you haven't been baptized, this bad boy is going to be done by the end of the month. I'll meet you at the mikvah. Alright? John 1, 29. Let's continue on.